This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Episode 77, Concerning Some Demons of the Lanercost Chronicle and a Revenant. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Something's in my house. Sometimes there's a pressure on my shoulders, like something's pulling at me, like a heavy backpack. I find it hard to sleep. And just a moment ago, as I was walking through the living room to come into this office to record, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted a white figure. Shorter than an adult person, and not just pale, but white. Bone white. Or, really, the white of paper. Indeed, the exact color of paper. And the height was not a child, but the exact height of a stack of 42 ungraded essays. Oh, it's a dark and haunting presence, that stack of essays. And I'm going to have to spend the bulk of my Halloween evening, uh, the very moment I can hit publish on this episode, clutching a gradebook as my Bible and exercising them to the temporary afterlife uh, until revision resurrects them for me to confront again in a couple of weeks, when it will be November, and the last dregs of the Halloween candy will hopefully all be eaten and disposed of. Yes, it's Medieval Death Trip's fifth anniversary, but our usual Halloween extravaganza will have to be slightly scaled back. Uh, I have a great text for you, but there won't be quite as much deeply researched commentary on it. However, having five years of episodes does have its advantages in a case like this, because most of the things I'd want to say about the stories we're going to hear... I've said before in earlier episodes, so if you want more Halloween-y content from us, you can make a little playlist of the other MDT episodes I'll be footnoting here. Our text today is an old favorite, which first appeared in our very second episode concerning another miracle cure for extreme swelling, a sinful clerk, and some lightning bolts, uh, and which we last heard from this past April uh, when we heard about a fight between the sink ports in Normandy along with two visions of the Virgin Mary as an intercessor in a couple of trials. That's right, we're returning to the Lanercost Chronicle, uh, and largely exhausting its remaining stockpile of ghost stories. Or, more accurately, demon stories. We encounter one revenant, the body of an evil person that walks around after death causing mayhem, uh, as with the revenants of William of Newborough, uh, see episode 31, Our chronicler leaves it rather ambiguous whether this is a corpse animated by a devil or by the wicked soul of the dead person who's come back to terrorize the streets of Clydesdale. There does seem to be a hint of a thoroughly unorthodox idea that the truly wicked can kind of become demons or at least demonic after death, kind of a parallel with how cartoonists draw the souls of good dead people with halos and angels' wings, and how sometimes today the phrase guardian angel is applied to dead human relatives. Uh, So, in the medieval Christian context, it's plausible to imagine at least a popular belief in supernatural anti-saints that continue to act in the world as the opposites to saints. Again, the orthodox theology of hell and damnation doesn't really allow for such a thing, uh, except perhaps as something allowed by God to help teach lessons to or to chastise the faithful. And that gets you into that weird Book of Job territory, where it kind of looks like demons are agents of God enacting God's will, which is troubling. 
but this idea is all over the stories I've pulled out of the Lanarkost Chronicle to share with you today. We've had one other demonic story from Lanarkost before, uh, featured in episode 16, concerning coin-eating and a demon child. The demon child in that story was a roadside apparition who mortally injures a young woman who just happens to be passing by. In that episode, I offered that tale as a kind of memorial to horror director Wes Craven, who had recently passed away. And I noted a commonality between this story and a theme of many of Craven's movies, which is the persecution of the innocent. Many of the other iconic slasher movies of Craven's era are famous for their puritanical subtext. The teens that Jason Voorhees machetes and impales and dismembers and everything else are often the ones indulging in vices, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And the conventional final girl is pure and virginal, sometimes literally, but often just in comparison. Uh, but you have this moralizing theme of bad behavior leading to supernatural punishment. So I made the point that in the Demon Child story, as in many of Wes Craven's movies, the victims don't do anything to supposedly attract death other than just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or in the case of A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, inheriting the sins of the fathers by accident of birth. Well, that may be true for the strange tale of the demon child on the side of the road, but boy, it is not the case for almost all the other demon stories in the Lanarkost Chronicle. The ones we're going to hear are comfortably in the mold of showing how the sinful and the negligent are due a demonic comeuppance, uh, one thoroughly permitted and endorsed, apparently, by God. That said, much like with Friday the 13th, the moralizing component feels a bit secondary to the sheer relish of telling a weird and gruesome tale. Our chronicler may try to put a little sermon stamp at the end of these stories, but their roots are not in the pulpit, but around the campfire. As is characteristic of the Lanarkost Chronicle, these stories are just peppered in throughout the historical accounts, and I've pulled them out of their natural places to make this compilation. I'll identify the year under which each of these appears in the Chronicle at the start of each story. I don't really have any glosses for these stories, uh, they're fairly straightforward, but there is one bit of racist imagery uh, that we need to talk about, uh, where a white scholar is possessed by a demon, and the chronicler chooses to describe how his appearance changes as being such that he might be mistaken for, quote, a filthy Ethiopian, end quote. This is a racist motif that you do find in medieval writers, uh, though I associate it even more with the Victorians. Uh, disheartingly, I know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle goes to the trope of monstrous blackness on more than one occasion. Uh, but it is there in this story, and I didn't want to let it pass without acknowledgement. And ironically, um, if that's the right word, our chronicler is particularly inept in this description because he makes his point of contrast, uh, perhaps in the absence of a linguistic conception of white racial identity, uh, he contrasts Ethiopian with Christian. Given that Ethiopia was a stronghold of Christianity in Africa in the Middle Ages, uh, this just amplifies our chronicler's ignorance here. So that's one flavor of horror that's also briefly here in our tales, but I hope you'll enjoy the more Halloween-like horror of demons and flaming plows and the walking and fighting dead. Here are five devilish stories from the Lanarkost Chronicle, as translated by Sir Herbert Maxwell. 
for the year 1281. It happened in the same year that two Minorite friars of the convent of Dunfries were traveling the country of Annandale to preach at the Holy Nativity of the Lord. Howbeit there was near where they passed the steward of a certain church and overseer of the rector's glebe, who, being oppressed with infirmity, felt obliged to make confession, but, intending not to do so honestly, concealed twenty gold pieces which he had embezzled from his master. Having received from his master, the rector, instructions to prepare the house for his coming, the sick man quitted the hall wherein he had lain until that time, and moved into a wattled barn, where a single girl ministered to the needs of his ailment. But one of these nights, when these two were resting apart, there came some satellites of Satan, who entered the house about cockcrow, lit a fire, placed upon it a cauldron, and poured in water to heat it. A little afterwards, two of these devils were sent to the bed of the sick man, lifted him out, soused him in the boiling water, and then bound him dripping to the crossbeam of the house, tearing at him with their nails and jeering at him with, Take that for the twenty pieces of gold. This was done three times in succession, the woman all the time witnessing the punishment and listening to the accusation. Having perpetrated the cruelty which God permitted, his tormentors carried the wretched man back to bed. Then one of them exclaimed, What shall be done to that woman lying there? To whom the leader replied, That water is not suitable for her. She is the priest's whore, and hotter water will suit her better. When he said this, they all departed, and the woman went to the sick man and asked with trembling how he was, who answered her, You beheld my torments. Need you ask how I am? But for the fear of God, let a priest come to me and seek safety for yourself. Therefore, when it was light, she went a distance of five miles to Annan, where, having confessed herself, she found plenty of hot water. For the year 1285. Four years before this time, there befell something else which, out of reverence for God's name and worship, must not be concealed. Certain scholars, residing at Oxford for the purpose of study, yielded themselves to sleep one of these days after supper. One of them, less careful about his comfort than the rest, but as merry and lively as the rest, went to his usual bedroom in some upper chamber. About midnight, his companions were alarmed to hear him shouting, striking and gnashing his teeth, and roused their fellow lodgers. Hastening to his bedside, they found the man speechless, behaving as if on the point of death. But, which is very wonderful, his whole body presented such a horrible appearance that you would have believed him to be a filthy Ethiopian rather than a Christian. And so, as all of them thought that his peril was urgent, one of them of more fervid faith than the others exclaimed, Let one of us begin the holy gospel of God according to John, and I hope it will relieve the sick man. Whereupon the others, stimulated by faith, began to recite the holy gospel in parts, because they did not know the whole of it. And lo, the evil spirit having gone out of him in the hearing of them all, shook to the ground the great stone stair which led to the door of the chamber, leaving after his exit such a stench that they almost thought they would be suffocated. The sick man, however, restored to life by the sound of the holy words, shortly afterwards returned from the sooty appearance to his natural looks. This was related by a trustworthy person who was among them, 
and saw, heard, and noted the occurrence, and first of all pronounced the words of the gospel. For the year 1289. In Upper Lindsay, then, there is a priory in the place called Marchby, occupying long and broad pastures for feeding stock, not altogether by exclusive right, but sharing with their neighbors a common liberty by gift of the patrons. But whereas avarice, which is in the minds of all men of the present day, endeavors to make all common lands private property, the aforesaid monastery brought an action in London to the prejudice of all their neighbors, the suit having been suborned and the judges bribed. But as the commoners defended their cause at great legal expense, the matter was at length submitted to the verdict of twelve. But the jury, casting aside all reverence for God and the truth, and perpetrating fraud for the sake of favor, adjudged the ground to be freehold of the said monastery, and the monks caused a great part of the land to be plowed in token of season. But, on the other hand, God did not allow his name to be usurped with impunity, and he sowed the furrows of unrighteousness with the infamy of the act. For the twelve jurymen began to be steadily but gradually removed from the world, and ever as they were removed, they were submitted to a terrible yoke. For during about two years afterwards, there appeared in that country a fiery plow, glowing like hot brass, having a most foul fiend as driver, who drove the dead men, harnessed in that manner, to the ground where he had incited them to guile when living. Many persons beheld these wretches clearly, committed to the plow like oxen, always at the hour of noon, and this, I imagine, was done because it is at such an hour men most assiduously press litigation before the judges. Those coming to behold the spectacle were warned to be careful for their safety, nor did they know for whom were reserved those yokes which they perceived to be empty. Howbeit, after these years, Alan of Hottuft, the spiritual advocate of the said prior in this suit, and the contriver of the fraud, which it is not expedient to explain in detail, was seen plainly before men's eyes, after his death, driving and guiding the said plow. And, repeatedly addressing many of them, he explained to them the reason for that punishment, and implored urgently that the judgment which had been pronounced might be revoked, if, in compassion, they proposed to mitigate the punishment of these persons. Although all this was made public throughout the province, yet was I unwilling to believe it easily, until I heard the particulars of the truth from the lips of a certain nobleman, who lived not more than three miles from the place in question. For the year 1290. For variety of matter may here be told what happened about this date in Cunningham, a district of Scotland, which may frighten publicans and be a check upon tipplers. There was then, and still survives, albeit a changed man, a certain countryman in the said district, William by name, a man possessed of means, but inclined to stuff his belly with more than he ought. In truth, how slothful gluttony renders a working man. This one was in the habit of sneaking away from his own cottage, and in another village, as he could not have it at home, he would spend the means of other men in carousals and drink, until he was checked by the divine hand in the following manner. He was sitting alone by the hearth in the house of a certain publican, gulping down rather than drinking the beer he had bought, all the inmates of that house being busy in outdoor occupations, when there appeared to the fool an exceedingly hideous likeness of a spirit of the air seated opposite him, 
with a foul body, ghostly countenance, fiery eyes, and of terrific dimensions. The disciple of Bacchus shuddered at the sight, but being bolder through drink, which makes even the unwarlike pugnacious, accosted him with an inquiry whose satellite he might be, or what business he had to be there. The other, haughtily disregarding these questions, asked with a laugh who was the bold fellow who did not recognize him as the owner of a house in that place, who for thirty years past had held the foremost place among the topers of that same tavern. And that I may not deceive you, said he, come and see what I have stowed up from the gluttony of spindthrifts. The other crossed the hearth without delay, and beheld beside the spirit of deceit an open vessel crammed with abominations so filthy that they almost drove the foolish fellow crazy. These which you see, said the minister of evil, I have collected from the vomit of thy companions and your revels. Having his conscience thus awakened, although, as Solomon said, he had not felt the rod, and forewarned of the impending danger, William voluntarily made a vow to the Lord that he would never in any circumstances taste malt liquor again for the rest of his life, which vow he keeps inviolable at this day to the wonder of all his former acquaintance. He bears witness to all men of what he saw with his own eyes, and he told what is stated above to two trustworthy and religious men with whom I am well acquainted. For the year 1296, at this time also there befell a great calamity to the students of Oxford, so much so that many of them died suddenly, and in a single day sixteen corpses or more were carried into one church. Something equally horrible and marvelous happened then in the west of Scotland, in Clydesdale, about four miles from Paisley, in the house of a certain knight, Sir Duncan de Insula, which may serve to strike terror into sinners and foreshow the appearance of the damned in the day of the last resurrection. Now, there was a certain fellow wearing the garments of holy religion who lived wickedly and died most wretchedly, being bound by sentence of excommunication on account of certain acts of sacrilege committed in his own monastery. Long after his body had been buried, it vexed many in the same monastery by appearing plainly in the shade of night. This child of darkness proceeded to the house of the said knight in order to disturb the faith of simple persons and terrify them by molesting them in broad daylight, or, more probably, by a secret decree of God, that he might indicate by such token those who were implicated in his misdoing. Having then assumed a bodily shape, whether natural or aerial is uncertain, but it was hideous, gross, and tangible, he used to appear at noonday in the dress of a black monk and settle on the highest parts of the dwellings or storehouses. And when men either shot at him with arrows or thrust him through with forks, straightway whatever was driven into that damned substance was burnt to ashes in less time than it takes to tell it. Also, he so savagely felled and battered those who attempted to struggle with him as well nigh to shatter all their joints. Now, the knight's eldest son, an esquire of full age, was especially troublesome to him in this kind of fighting. And one evening, when the father was sitting with the household round the hearth, this malignant creature came in their midst, throwing them into confusion with missiles and blows. All the rest having taken to their heels, the esquire attacked him single-handed. But, most sad to say, he was found on the morrow slain by the creature. 
Wherefore, if it be true that a demon has no power over anybody except one who leads the life of a hog, it is easy to understand why that young man came to such an end. So, another soul punished for leading a sinful life, like the embezzling steward and unchaste woman, the merrymaking Oxford scholar, the corrupt jurors, and the drunkard. The steward, the priest concubine, and the drunkard's tales all have a whiff of Ebenezer Scrooge about them. They're tales of sinners reformed through instructive horror. The jury of the damned is closer to an otherworld vision, a preview for the witnesses of the torments of hell. And the revenant of the wicked clerk is, well, a good old-fashioned monster tale. He could also be Grendel or Glaumer, uh, and for the latter, see our last Halloween episode. There is an interesting detail in the jury and revenant story, which is that their spectral entities manifest themselves at the spooky hour of noon. It's not what you'd expect, uh, and I don't have an answer for why. It doesn't really suit the campfire tale atmosphere though I sort of wonder if it might have something to do with storytelling in a less visual narrative culture. It's hard to make something look scary in bright light on stage, or to draw it in bright light in engravings or penny-dreadful illustrations. So, as popular storytelling gets increasingly visual, and the storytelling imagination gets more visual, maybe a daylight monster becomes harder to sell. Now, Glaumer and other revenants of the Icelandic sagas roam about in the daytime. The demon child story happens in the daytime. But Grendel and Grendel's mother, on the other hand, attack at night, and roof riding usually happens at night, though we get to see our revenant in Clydesdale doing roof riding in the day. Anyway, there are plenty of spooky midnight encounters in medieval stories, as there should be, because nighttime is scary. But there was a sense that the daytime could be scary too, in a way that maybe we don't see as much in the supernatural horror of later eras. Although, that might be something coming back. Uh, once you get past the night of the living dead, a lot of zombie movies make use of the daytime. Pennywise is torturing the Losers Club in the daylight, uh, and It Follows has a lot of daylight horror. Obviously, there should be a lot of horror potential in denying your characters the safety of the sunrise. And certainly, that idea fits with the sermonizing elements of these tales. Divine punishment does not only come at night. In fact, speaking of sermonizing, the other detail I find more odd than the daytime hauntings is how the demon plowman apparently stops to lecture witnesses on why this punishment is happening. Uh, and not just once to one or two people, but seemingly regularly, like it's a local tourist attraction. That also kind of takes some of the spookiness out of it, and it does rather make me wonder if there might be a reality behind this story where there was a real local performance put on of the Plow of the Damned, a sort of medieval version of a proselytizing hell house scene. 
the little detail that visitors were told to be careful of their safety, don't get too close, you can picture some carnival barker types running the show and cycling the crowds through. I don't know. It's a tempting image. Our translator, Sir Herbert Maxwell, offers his own take on these stories in a footnote attached to the Revenant story. He writes, quote, It is not so easy to understand how Christianity retained its ascendancy among reasonable beings when its doctrines were enforced by such gross and unscrupulous falsehoods as those with which this chronicle abounds. End quote. And I'll have to leave it there, because duty calls. As I did last year, I do want to give a special shout-out to my Patreon patrons, especially those of you who became patrons for any duration since our last anniversary. So, among that last group, let me acknowledge you in approximately chronological order. Thank you, John S., Kevin H., Claire R., Shane G., Joy W., Christopher F., David W., uh, a different John S., Colleen B., Jorel S., Timothy L., Cindy X., Mandy J., Krista, Aaron R., Andrew M., Aaron D., Sixel, Daniel M., Michael, Martin M., Nero Sassy, Lucas, Gretchen N., JDT, Cassandra, Lindsay S., Thomas B., Kim L., Glenn P., uh, Smizzy Power, or maybe S. Mizzy Power, or some other correct pronunciation of that username, I'm sorry. Uh, Katie L., Christine B., Elliot B., Gabriel N., Susan A., James M., and just earlier this month, Maya, our most recent patron as of this recording. If I missed anyone, I apologize. Uh, If that has happened, I blame Google Mail for misplacing an update. But thanks again to all of you, especially those who stuck with me through the hiatus. We will have a new audiobook just for patrons that I'll release before the year's end. Uh, We'll have to see about the little appendix bonus features between now and then. Uh, Just getting the episodes done is going to require a lot of special effort, but I'll try to have some little extra nuggets for you when I can. No mystery word or riddle for our Halloween episodes, um, but both will be back with our November episodes. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. You can email questions or comments to me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And at medievaldeathtrip.com, you can get more information, including references, for this and every episode of the show, as well as find out how to support us through Patreon. Or you can just go to patreon.com and search for Medieval Death Trip. So until next time, as we shift from terrors to turkeys and from monsters to mashed potatoes, keep safe out there. Avoid those boiling cauldrons, overindulging at the pub, being unscrupulous in real estate deals, and encountering the walking dead. And thanks for listening to five years, or fewer per your individual mileage, of Medieval Death Trip.